So number 218, we've been each asked to mark, and we'll use that at the appropriate time at the close of the lesson this evening. The delight that is again ours at the close of this day to assemble, to gather, to worship, to offer the adoration and praise to God is truly a monumental and noble thing. And each of us truly been blessed to simply have this ability today. As the week unfolds before us, if it be the will of God, may we be guided by those words of James, the fourth chapter, that if it be the Lord's will, we'll do this or that, enter into such a city and buy and sell, and in fact to achieve the reality of gain. As we continue tonight our series of lessons on the Revelation, our students who are continuing their study of the Revelation have certainly taken themselves through many of the chapters of that book. In fact, I think they completed the 22nd chapter this evening in, in their afternoon study. As they work through all those particular chapters, they've now completed them and have arrived at the point of looking through a whole host of questions and reviewing, of course, for the actual event of the 10th of September. Let's continue to encourage them, to support them, to think of their efforts and their labor and study. Indeed, as we continue to study along with them, we are several chapters behind them at this point. But we too tonight will come to the 12th and 13th chapters of the Revelation. I might invite you to turn to those two chapters with me this evening as we at least try to extract some of the thoughts that will help us appreciate the thoughts contained in those two chapters of the Word of God. As you might notice in the subtitle of the lesson tonight, we'll be looking at a woman, a child, the dragon, and some beasts. Those three things, or rather those four things, highlight much about what we shall find in these chapters and with them, we might, by way of introduction, just briefly note a few of the things that we've seen in these first 11 chapters. We did notice that in chapters 4 through 11, it was the opening of the seven-sealed book, and in many ways those chapters worked together as one harmonious whole. As we come to the close of chapter 11, we find a crescendo, a powerful reality and a figure in which in verse 15 it was said, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. An overwhelmingly wonderful anthem and a statement of adoration and exaltation. But as we open the twelfth chapter of this book, we notice also it comes on the heels of those great witnesses that we saw in the eleventh chapter. It shall be the case tonight that as we come to the 12th and 13th chapters, we shall encounter some things we haven't seen yet in the book in terms of visions that John saw, in terms of lessons that were to be laid upon him, and the reality to be seen in their figures. It is without any further ado, we then begin to ask the question, how does the 12th chapter open, and what is it that John saw? Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child, which as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. 
And immediately the first six verses of Revelation 12 have brought before our mind the thought of a woman, pregnant indeed. This pregnancy was to bring forth a child, but oddly enough there was in waiting a dragon beside her and ready to consume the child as soon as it was born. And what a horrific picture. What a picture that brings disgust and horror to our mind. In fact, as we attempt to highlight a few of its features, we see again a woman. This is what verse 1 tells us, a great wonder appeared in heaven. Immediately we notice that she was in great pain because she was pregnant and ready to in fact deliver. As we immediately notice, there was a great red dragon in waiting, and this dragon had some seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on those seven heads. Furthermore, his tail was sufficiently mighty that it drew a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And with that, immediately we notice he was waiting, this dragon was, to devour, to eat, to in fact eliminate that man-child that was to be born. The woman indeed successfully gave birth, but the dragon was unsuccessful in his attempt because immediately we notice this one was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and that child was caught up to God. And might we take note, not just to God, but to His throne. The babe was born to rule and in fact that he was shortly to do. Furthermore, the woman fled into the wilderness and there we find for some 1,260 days the time period described in verses 5 and 6, we find that she, of course, in this wilderness period therein remained. Maybe as we give thought to those things, it might be fair to look at a picture, as we've done on a number of occasions before, to at least look at what someone has drawn with respect to these matters. Here we, in fact, see a dragon in waiting, and there's also a woman. That was, of course, the woman of verses 1 and 2. As you can see, she is clothed with the sun. She has all the ornamental matters of verses 1 and 2 and described in the picture. But we notice the dragon with all of its heads and crowns waiting to devour the child that she would bear. Again, as we appreciate the horrificness of the picture, we notice that the chapter will readily proceed onward. With it, what might some observations be, at least about the first six verses? Some things that might challenge us to put in our mind that we might think about exactly what it is that is stated. First of all, the woman, drawn from passages from the book of Isaiah, as well as even from some New Testament verses. It would seem to be a reference to the saints of the Old and New Testament era, in which we appreciate that they, in fact, often were described as a, of a feminine gender, and we've even borrowed some of that even to our day as we speak of a nation, for, for instance, in the feminine gender. Sometimes even the church is spoken of in that way. But we also notice that there was a great glory in regard to all that's described before us in these six verses. Perhaps in part, we might notice about this dragon and about this child. It would seem, based on the fact that this child was said to again rule on his throne, and furthermore, to have this rod of iron, and at least three times in Scripture, it is the Christ referenced in verses like that. It would so seem to be again here, in which as the Christ was come forth and Satan had an opportunity for that period while he was in the flesh to bring to naught the plan and power of God. But may we never forget that he failed. 
May we never forget, Jesus did not succumb to any temptation. He did not succumb to anything that would in fact remove Him from the opportunity that was His to pave the way for your salvation and mine. And so it was in His perfection, Satan failed in his attempt to eliminate the Christ. It was during that period that Jesus was on earth that He knew the fallibility of men in the sense that He knew all the temptations that we know. For didn't Hebrews 4.15 remind us, even so wonderfully, that we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Satan's attempt failed. And as we give thought then to who the dragon was, we are left in verse 9 with no doubt about this one. The dragon certainly here representative of the devil himself, Satan. And we notice near the bottom that those horns represent as well as the heads a degree of power. And don't we still know the power of the devil? In fact, in Ephesians 2, 2, he is said to be the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, he is described as the god of this world. In all of those ways, Jesus himself said, the strong man is here. But a stronger than the strong man is also present, Mark 3.27. In all of those ways, we come to appreciate the greatness associated with the power of this roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5.8. With those things highlighted, and at least some of those observations represented, it only leads us though, that was only the first six verses of the chapter. Beginning in verse 7, we read as follows. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea! For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time." And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, unto her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman... And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the woman was wroth. I'm sorry. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that finishes the chapter in terms of its reading. But again, to note at least what is described for us, we immediately notice the following. There was war in heaven, according to verse 7. And we find on the one hand was Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and those with him. And immediately we learn that the dragon did not prevail, but rather was cast out. And in so doing, 
we immediately notice a woe pronounced upon those that follow the dragon, those that are, in fact, those that follow him. We begin to appreciate that the dragon proceeded to persecute the woman after he saw he had failed in devouring the child, after he saw he was unsuccessful in removing this greatness of that element of God's plan, he turned his attention to the woman. She had fled, but now he heightens his persecution of her. Whatever it is that she stands for on this occasion, Satan takes an especial interest in her, desiring, since he failed before, now to thwart God's plan in another way. As we give thought in a moment to some of those observations, Let's notice as the chapter closes that Satan opened that new attack. And you'll notice water came forth from his mouth as he tried to use that to attack. And we notice that even earth aided by some means in verses 15 to 17. Finally, as the chapter closes, a rather interesting statement of verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that Satan's major idea, even then he still had a desire to attack those who had a love for faithfulness in regard to the work of God. You'll notice that he proceeded to attack those who keep the commandments of God. Isn't that kind of an interesting thing to consider? Maybe in its light we should give some thought to another picture. This is again another artist's rendition of some of the things described in what we have read from verses 7 on to 17 in Revelation, the 12th chapter. In it, you'll notice this pictorial of this war in which we see the old dragon cast out. In verse number 9, inasmuch as he is described again as the serpent, as the devil, as Satan, we aren't left to guess as to what that dragon represented. You'll notice he did deceive, and as described as that one that deceives the whole earth. May even us today recognize he will never tell the truth. Though he often paints sin as alluring and as attractive, as desirable, as fun-filled, as that which is noble and interesting, it never is. For in fact, that sin is what may appear to be pleasurable, and it may well be that. But oh, what grief comes after it. After the moment of pleasure, there are days, weeks, maybe even a lifetime of regret. How many have been the individuals who, after acting in some way, have wished, if only I could undo what a moment's action was. But the sad thing is, in so many times, it's not possible to undo it. It has consequences which will, in fact, last, perhaps all throughout life. As we revisit Revelation 12, you'll notice that the dragon wasn't successful. Pause for just a minute and think then about the ways that he was defeated. First, he wasn't able to devour the child. Second, he lost his war in heaven. Thirdly, he's not even able to overwhelm the saints that he follows in verses 15 to 17. Oh sure, he attacks some of them and some give in to him. But in the final analysis, verse number 11 will be a monumental one. It was our Bible reading for the evening. We'll revisit it in just a moment. Before we do so, yet another picture. You'll notice again this particular picture that shows us some of that that we've seen in this chapter. Among all these pictures, our idea is to indelibly embed in our mind a thought 
of what perhaps John saw, and maybe with that which he saw, we can remember it perhaps better than we otherwise would have. This rebellion in heaven described as that war beginning in verse 7. May we appreciate that there are some Old Testament hints to some attempted uprisings in the days of the long ago in heaven. But from the words of our Savior in Matthew the 6th chapter, it would strongly appear that there is no such war or divisiveness in heaven today. For He said, did He not in that prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It would appear today that whatever would have been the case of rebellion in the days of the long past, that rebellion that Jude describes, as well as the one that Peter referenced in 2 Peter the second chapter, of course, God's forces overwhelmingly won then, as they always shall. Even beyond that, some other thoughts. That deception of Satan. Brother Harold mentioned in his prayer this evening in which even we can recognize that Satan has the appearance at times of transforming himself into an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, That is to say, what appears to be right is actually the working of the devil and thus may turn out to be that which is wholeheartedly bringing about evil. We must be so cautious and mindful and careful. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He is, in fact, the father of lies, John 8, 44. That teaches us alone, doesn't it, that he does not strive to tell us that which is truthful. We know from Revelation 12, verse 11, buried in the midst, and surely it must be one of the great passages in the Revelation. But we have on this occasion a passage that helps all of us answer a very noble question. If the devil is so powerful... If he is described as that strong man as the Lord described him, if he is the prince of the power of the air, if he is the one who seems to walk about as that roaring lion, a very good question and a valiant one would be, how then do I, as an individual Christian, defeat him? Revelation twelve eleven is a passage that we each should often remember in that regard. It again reads as follows, And they overcame him, that is the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their life to the death. A three-pronged attack that he can never defeat. First, the blood of the Lamb. The overwhelming efficacy and power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The fact that Satan can never overwhelm the opportunity that blood makes available to forgive sin and to make one stand right before God. Jesus came into this world to defeat the power of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. He came in here to destroy the power of the devil, Hebrews 2, 14. And oh, He did it so well. But not only that reference, but note the next one, the word of their testimony. The power and might of that word of God. Again, Satan may misquote it, and he did quote Scripture in Matthew, the fourth chapter, didn't he? Even on that occasion when the Lord was tempted, the devil quoted from Psalm 91, but he misapplied it. He misinterpreted it. He attempted to use it in such a way to abuse it. A rightful division of the Word of God and an attack using it is something the devil can't defeat. How often do we remember that when Jesus again was tempted, He said, it is written, it is written, it is written, and quoted three times from the Old Testament. And following that, it says the devil left him for a season. He had met 
an enemy that he could not defeat. When you and I thus are equipped with the Word of God, and we are those who are not only knowledgeable of it, but we incorporate it and live by it, we too have at our disposal that which he cannot defeat. No wonder the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 9, 10, and 11 remind us of the fact that when we hide the Word of God in our heart, that is what in fact will allow us to walk rightly before God. A passage like that one is so comforting, so pleasantly powerful at that. And with that in mind, we notice the scenes that continue onward in Revelation 12. We notice that that devil turned his attack to the seed of the woman, those that keep the commandments of God. You and I must never think that a moment goes by that Satan isn't aware of what you and I as faithful Christians are doing because he's looking for a place to inch his way into your life and mine and to bring us to naught, to harm our influence, to hurt our relationship to the Master. After all, that's what he desires. He wishes for as many others as possible to know his eternal fate. The devil knows what his eternal fate is already. The demons knew it well in the gospel accounts. Hast thou come to torment us before the time, they ask? They knew well that it was an eternal torment awaiting them. And even Peter made note of the same, did he not, in 2 Peter 2 verse 4. In light of all of these, might we note the church today thus will ever be in the very focal point of the eyeglass of the devil desiring to cause division and faction and harm in your life and mine, to rip and tear lives asunder even as He can do the church, if we will but let Him. That's why we must ever be strong and true and loyal and allegiant to that which is the revelation of God through the character of His blood and to understand that that last element in the list was they loved not their lives to the death. We mustn't compromise even if it costs us our life. Those first century saints are hallmarks of that thought, aren't they? As individuals such as the apostle listed there for us in the 12th chapter of Acts, who went to his death because he was a Christian, and as so many others in that first century era also did. You and I too must live with that degree of loyalty. Sometimes those in Scotland refer to that kind of love as leal love, loyal love as it's called. You and I must have the same, and that thought is highlighted for us in passages such as the ones before us. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, we have a whole set of ideas reminding us about the need to put on the panoply, the armor of God. As that list begins, how did it start? He said, "...having done all therewith to stand." As you read through that list, one of the things listed is this. The devil is casting fiery darts at us. It's as if you and I are on the dartboard and he has us in his sights. No wonder we need that armor to deflect those darts so that you and I can live as we should and always rightly without that degree of sin before God. Isn't it a great thought to hear the messages and meanings of the 12th chapter of the Revelation? It is a thought that helps us appreciate that what's about to come in Revelation 13, for instance, as well as uh, on in Revelation 16, tell us about some darkness, some hardship, some oppression, some days that will no doubt bring tears and difficulties. But if we always remember, we will be victorious ultimately if we will but use this three-pronged attack against the devil 
and always reside and rest in the comforting character of the hollow of the hand of God. It is with that in mind that maybe it prepares us to look at chapter 13. And we'll use that to close our lesson or use the remainder of our time tonight to look into the 13th chapter. It is in this case that John again sees some rather interesting and somewhat scary things. Beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beasts. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. That scene has had a number of elements in it that captivate us in our thinking because in it we see the following. We notice as the chapter opens this dragon, but soon there's to be something joining him, a great beast that rises out of the sea. Here are some of the features. This beast that rises from the sea has some seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns, and the name of blasphemy is written on each of those heads. We furthermore notice that this beast was a very unusual thing. First of all, it was like a leopard, but its mouth was like a lion, and its feet were like the feet of a bear. And as you give some thought to all of that, might we never forget where this beast got its power. It says, the text does, it received it from the dragon. And we learned the dragon was the devil, and so the devil is who was supporting this sea beast giving him his power, making him able to do that which he was doing that was so evil and so deadly. We notice that so many turned their attention to this sea beast. So much so, it says, the world wondered after it. And later in the chapter, we'll notice that men worshipped it. They, in fact, gave it homage and direction and glory even as they worshipped this sea beast. As you give thought to all of that, it does challenge us perhaps to at least make some of the following statements that go on in that chapter about what, what we could say about that sea beast. First, he spoke blasphemies. Notice again, that which he spoke, though powerful he was, he spoke that which was absolutely opposed and resistant to the things of God. He continued for some 42 months, and during that time, notice he blasphemed God, His name, the tabernacle, and all it seems that the righteousness of God was denoted in holiness. 
He made war with the saints and succeeded in overcoming some of them. Those are listed as he had power over kindreds and tongues and nations. And the sad thing is, of course, that those who worshipped him did not have their names in that book of life. That book of life rises to such greatness often in the sacred scriptures, doesn't it? Always reminding us of the specialness of that book and how lovely it is to have one's name written in it. These who gave their interest in worship to that sea beast didn't have their name in that book. If it had ever been there, it had been erased. It makes us note then, as we come to that bottom, to notice again the importance of verse number 9. If any man have an ear, let him hear. This lesson was this for many people because there was grand principles to notice, grand things to appreciate and to apply to life. I suppose the question might be, who or what is the sea beast? What is said about it? Can we piece some things together and draw any conclusions about its identification? Perhaps as we give thought to a picture. Here again is an artist's rendition of a beast rising out of that sea. Though you may not be able to see some of the details, but you can see a mouth as a lion if you're able to do so. Feet like those of a bear, again, if you're able to see that detail. You see other features about the leopard-like nature of this beast. But as we look at all the features of it and give some impressions of it, it only leads us to perhaps note some of these ideas. We will notice again how closely related this sea beast is to the, to the dragon. And they seem to work in tandem. It seems as if the dragon, that devil himself, is the one encouraging and supporting and making possible the elements and the pursuit by this sea beast with the character of blasphemy seen on the nature of it as well, whatever it proclaimed and the interest that was seen in it seemed to have no relation of interest at all to upholding in any way that which was of God. Furthermore, you'll notice that this does remind us remarkably of Daniel the seventh chapter, where Daniel saw a beast, in fact, one after another, and they were lions and leopards and bears. All of them seemingly draw us almost immediately back to that same occasion. And it would thus seem that that seventh chapter of Daniel sheds a great deal of light on how you and I should look upon this sea beast of this chapter. Whatever it was, since in Daniel 7, that points us to the Roman Empire. This seems to thus directly relate in some way to it. That what Rome encouraged the horror and the difficulty they brought to the saints, apparently followed with that work of the devil to so harm that early church, to in fact bring difficulties to her, to cause, if it would be his will, to bring her to naught. Can't we be so thankful that he again did not succeed? He was unsuccessful in that attempt. We notice so many things about Rome, not only in this chapter, but in some of the chapters to follow, whether it be its nature of the seven hills, whether it be the character of the mighty rulership she enjoyed at this time, she was the mighty one that followed not only the days of those empires of Babylon and of Greece and of Persia, but she was the one in existence and so many turned their attention ultimately to actually give their worship to those Roman Caesars, to the Roman emperors. And in that degree of worship, we notice that that would help us see much of what John here wrote had a re reality and fulfillment in that way. That tells us that what a great difficulty it would have been 
in many ways to be a faithful Christian during a time like that. When your civil rulers were demanding that you worship them, and when those who held civil office demanded that, in fact, you bow before a bust or statue of them, when, of course, a Christian couldn't do that, because there is but one God, and there is but one Christ, and there is but one Lord. And thus, that would be idolatry. And one would not be able, of course, to serve God and do that too. However, to refuse might have meant one's life. To refuse might have meant the very nature of one's well-being with one's family. You might have been removed from them. They might have been slain. In every instance, this beast was indeed a horrible thing. Isn't it sad to notice that some of the descriptions in that chapter found parallel fulfillment in a number of ways, even in later centuries, though that wouldn't have been very comforting to the saints of this first century. It would be perhaps beyond that to notice how needful it was to appreciate the patience and the faith of the saints. They were about to suffer even more so than what they had been. And with it, how difficultly they needed to appreciate the times might well become. With those things in mind, John isn't at all finished. Because we notice another beast is now about to be seen. As if the sea beast weren't enough. Now we come to see, beginning in that same chapter, verse number 11, yet another beast. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword, and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that, cause that as many as would not worship the beast of the image should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. And with that, again, the curtain closes in terms of narrative on Revelation 13. Some comments or remarks might well be these. As we've read them, this is just a description of what we've just read together. Another beast John quickly sees. As if the sea beast weren't enough, this one rises after, so he follows in some way chronologically the elements of the former. This one had two horns like a lamb. Furthermore, we quickly notice he spoke like a dragon. He exercised great power of the sea beast. He caused the earth and his people to worship the sea beast. You can quickly notice this second beast turned as much as possible the attention of all to that first beast. He's a supporting character. He is a character that in fact strives to lift up and to cause men to worship that sea beast of which we've just discussed. You'll notice that this land beast encouraged the image of the sea beast. And we notice that those who did not turn their attention so, it says, were killed. Those who refused to honor the beast, 
even with the, the interesting character and power of the land beast, says they were killed. If they refused, they died. Isn't it interesting as you close that slide to notice that this land beast also caused all to receive a mark in their forehead or on their hand. And this mark of the beast, as it's called, is such that they were not allowed to buy or sell unless they had it. Again, that's the reading of verses 16 and 17. And then it identifies the number 666 as it relates to that. With all of that, perhaps another picture. You notice here both the land beast and the sea beast drawn in one particular picture. And you'll notice again the horrific character of this thing that John saw. If you and I had such a thought here, of course, we would appreciate perhaps a nightmare. But yet as John saw these great principles of truth were being revealed and marvelous things that they were to listen to and to understand. With these beasts, we now notice this land beast as we try to understand a bit more carefully what she was. We notice again her attention was to support that sea beast. The sea beast was primal in character in the sense that it was more important and this land beast wished to encourage and to uplift and to cause even more to understand and to follow that sea beast. You'll notice that whatever this represents, something very interesting is said about it. It had two horns. In so many of the earlier cases, the number seven appeared or perhaps ten, but this is two. But a lamb naturally does have two horns. We notice, though, that so often that word lamb, as it appeared in Revelation and otherwise, reminds us of the purity and the loveliness that it went along with pure religion. After all, Jesus was represented in chapter 5 as a lamb, though that it had been the lion of the tribe of Judah. When John looked again, it was a lamb. And didn't John say in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And yet here, this land beast had two horns. Thus, it had the appearance of being pure in religion, but it was not. It was counterfeit. It was fake. Though it had the appearance of being noble and right, it was not. And so those that were deceived into following it, giving their attention and worship to the sea beast, ultimately found themselves so far removed from what God wished of them to know and do. That aspect of the land beast takes us as follows. You'll notice that he spoke as a dragon, but yet we've just learned the dragon was the devil. And so that which this land beast spoke was really nothing more than the work of Satan. So far these two beasts, the land beast and the sea beast, have both been intimately connected with the devil. Both have been intimately attempting to, in fact, lift up and do his work and to encourage all to do the same. In light of those beasts and in light of those comments, you'll notice this land beast claimed to, to do great wonders. You'll notice things like fire coming down from heaven, things related to other issues concerning what you and I would say as the claim to the miraculous. All of it points us to some additional questions and features. As we look to the interesting features of how we'll close the chapter tonight, here are some thoughts and reflections on the matter of the land beast and on the matter of that mark of the beast that John closes the chapter with in verse 18. First of all, that mark goes directly with the matter of these beasts because you'll notice it says it's the name. It's the name of a man, the mark of a man. 
As you can also see, without that mark, there was to be great difficulty. In fact, one could not buy or sell without that mark. As you give thought to what this land beast may have been, we've already learned the sea beast was intimately connected with the Roman Empire. The land beast, since this one upheld it, was intimately connected with the same. Just chronologically a bit later, false religion, which was supported by the Roman leadership, and so many of the empire fell right into the sway to fall it because without it, they were unable to buy food for their families, they were unable to support themselves, and they followed it thus almost in many ways as a decision to try to care for those whom they loved. The two worked in a tandem that would ultimately plague the human family, so much so that we still are plagued in part by it today. What kind of false religion ultimately came out of that after a few centuries of continued digression, a few centuries of continued apostasy? Well, again, we ultimately know even by the second century, already one among elders had begun to appear and to take authority that had never been vested in them. And as they lifted themselves up, occupying roles of leadership over numbers of congregations, of course, after a few more centuries, that came to represent itself. And what today is seen, of course, as the Pope, the one supposedly ruling over all the churches of earth. Of course, we know such a thing was never God's intent. And in fact, it went far astray from the truth that was God's original ideal. This mark of the beast, you'll notice that inasmuch as this stands opposed to that sealing of the foreheads of the servants of God back in chapter 7, we would desire today, of course, to be sealed in our foreheads as God's servant, not to wear the mark of the beast. And the two are so different. The mark of the beast allows one to succeed here on earth carnally, to allow one to do what one can upon this earth, but to be sealed in the forehead, characteristic, of course, of sealing as the servants of God prepares us for eternity, so that we know that whatever befalls us here, be it physical difficulty, be it physical starvation even, we nonetheless have the recognition of the power of God at our disposal. Now has come salvation. That verse we read in Revelation 13 just a few moments ago. With all that said, we come to the bottom. Some have paid an interest in the nature again of verses 17 and 18 because this number 666. There are so many who have such an interest in that number. There are some who will never, in fact, sit in a seat, for instance, on a plane that has a row of sixes in it. There were some who will perhaps never, in fact, have an address that is 666 Main Street. They're fearful of using that number. They're fearful of what may come upon it because supposedly it's the mark of the beast. But might we notice that it does say it is the number of a man. Verse number 18. 666 is the number of a man. What kind of man? What man? Who is this man? It might be fair to notice that a few suggestions over the centuries have been noted. As one gives thought to the Roman numerals, perhaps we remember studying them in school. The numbers V and X and I and L, they all carried with them a numerical value. And we remember that, of course, in the Roman Empire, the Latin language was their language. And I wonder, could there be an individual? Could there be a particular symbolic character of a man who, when you add the value of the letters of his name, 
it adds up to 666. One interesting possibility is in fact this one. That one who was the founder of the Latin race and the one for whom the ultimate character of both these beasts would eventually come and the one who would of course be the great dearth and difficulty on so many was of course Latinos and if you take L and A and T and E and I and N and O and S and add up the value of those numbers, you get 666. Could it be that God was revealing, of course, to John the great difficulty and oh, what sore plagues were going to come as a result of these two beasts which were intimately connected with and tied to that Roman Empire? It's not to say that saints had to follow in to them, but if they remained faithful, it was going to be hard and it was going to be challenging. And yet this book was written as a book of victory a book reminding them of the need to be strong and steadfast no matter what. These beasts are going to come before you and they're going to stand over you and they are going to try to turn your attention to worship that beast and all that went with him, but you remain faithful. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Those words to the church in Smyrna echo so powerfully in our ears today as the needful matter in your life and also of mine. In summary, we perhaps might close this lesson by noting that we've seen a woman and a dragon and a child. And we've also seen beasts. And all the while, we've learned that through it all, there is a means of defeating that devil. The blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, and being again not afraid to even die for His cause. Do those things describe your life and mine? Are you covered by the blood of Christ tonight? Have you built a life on the sure and firm foundation of the unchanging Word of God? The way of man indeed is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps, Jeremiah 10, 23. Tonight, if you've never put on the Lord in baptism, Galatians 3, 26 and 7, why not tonight? You could be the very one now covered by that blood. You could be the very one whose life is built on this, not on your own thinking or on anything else. You also can be the one so determined and dedicated that you would even be willing to die for His cause if that's what is required. Tonight, if you have been a faithful member of the Lord's body, but you no longer are or you are not at this moment, why not in haste, without delay, come back to the loving side of Jesus? We notice that that lamb died for you. Why not you turn over your life to Him? If we tonight could pray on your behalf, we'd be honored to do that. It would in fact be a great day of celebration, not only for the Pippin Church and certainly for you, but also, of course, for the angels in heaven. If we could be of assistance to you tonight, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?